You're listening to Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum. One of my favorites is on the show today. I mean, Lord of the Rings, Goonies, Goonies, Rudy, Stranger Things 2. I didn't see that one. He's been in everything. And I got to tell you, this this guy's a mensch. He is just a sweetheart. His father... His his father was Gomez Adams. Is it John Austin, I believe? John Austin. John Austin. Guess who his mother was? Patty Duke. I mean, he grew up with kind of like royalty, Hollywood royalty. And he tells great stories. I didn't care if he repeated a story. I wanted to hear these stories. I wanted to hear when he auditioned for Goonies. I wanted to hear when he got these amazing roles. And the stories, the pictures that he paints are just, I could listen to him forever. I don't know if there's more to say to this than and than that. Um, by the way, Tom Welling and I will be in Boston and Toronto in, in August, and Kristen With Kristen, Kristen Krug and, and uh, Tom and I will be in Toronto, Toronto. Uh, in August. And uh, Left and Laurel, our album's coming out very soon, so be on the lookout for that. I hope you guys enjoy it. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I don't know how many times I have to talk about this, but it's so important. If you're sitting there right now and you're stressed or you're anxious or you have a lot on your mind and you just bottle it up and you don't know what to do, it's going to come out and it's not going to come out in great ways all the time. Um, BetterHelp has helped me substantially. Ryan here has been using it for a while. And I, you know, don't you notice when you don't use BetterHelp? When you don't have therapy? Oh, the weeks where I miss a session? Of course, yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's like the more you talk about something, even if you don't think you have anything to talk about, things come up and it puts your mind at ease. And we all carry around different stressors, you know, big and small. And at times we keep carrying them around rather than processing them and letting them go. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. Therapy from BetterHelp is helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It's for all of us. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. I think people think, oh, what if I don't like my therapist? If you don't, you switch them. It's that easy. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com inside today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash inside inside of you is brought to you by rocket money i love rocket money you know why because everyone should have rocket money because it just helps you save money how many times do we have subscriptions that we don't even know we have anymore and we're paying so much money it's just throwing away money ryan i i found one you and you did it you told I me found, i got rocket money okay <laughs> I, I found one it i'm embarrassed to say how long it's been going on but thank you for finding it <laughs> my god it was embarrassing <laughs> yeah because it's like you want to watch some show and you go oh, i have to subscribe to this uh this streaming dev- uh, whatever mm-hmm. and you you start streaming the show you watch it you leave and you forget after this trial period it kicks in and it's they're charging terrible. you 10 bucks a month it's, it is embarrassing Ugh. you know 75 percent of people have subscriptions they've forgotten about before i started using rocket money i thought i had you know, like, oh, I have like five subscriptions. I could not believe it when they showed me I was paying for like four extra. Uh, 
between you know streaming advices and fitness apps, delivery services, it's never ending. And thanks to Rocket Money, I'm no longer wasting money on the ones I forgot about. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lowering your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with the customer service for you. I like that. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash inside. That's rocketmoney.com slash inside. Rocketmoney.com slash inside. Let's get inside of Sean Aston. It's my point of view. You're listening to Inside of You. Michael Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum was not recorded in front of a live studio audience. Why does she stay with you? Why does she stay with me? <laughs> yeah. You're talking about my assistant, Jess? Is that your assistant? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, she stays with me because without her, I think I'd probably completely fall apart. Oh, not probably. Because we were thinking of starting a podcast at my house, and I bet she'd... Come work for us. I'm just saying. Are you? Are you We're another actor steal. who wants to start a fucking podcast? <laughs> Everybody wants to start a podcast. No, no, now. I did a podcast before you did a podcast. It wasn't a podcast. It was I called it a radio show. Notice the air quote. Really? Yeah. I think you'd be, you know, incredibly successful. I think people would really listen to your podcast. No, I did a show called Vox Populi Radio, Voice of the Occasionally Interested People. Vox Populi means Voice of the People, and yeah, uh, and it was and it was the idea was civil discourse. So I did one season out of Toad Hop. You remember what Toad Hop was? No. That name doesn't sound ring about. Okay. Uh, I know Universal. Rob doesn't. He, he was born in 2008. No. You were born in two, No, he wasn't no, born in 2009. He's got two kids. He's 30. I know. You tell your face. Your face doesn't know yet. But uh, no, the John Lovitz Theater. Oh, yeah. I know. Up at, Universal. Right, in Universal. And on the third floor, they kind of retrofitted two little rooms to be like a little radio studio. And it was Frank and Heidi who are KLOS now. Oh, they were yeah. Frank and Heidi were big personalities, and they either got fired or their station got folded in or whatever. So they were kind of like, and this is this is too. This is like fifteen years ago, so maybe not that long, but it was a long time ago. Wow, and um, I didn't and know so this. I went there and said, "Listen, I want to do this political radio show." And they kind of looked me up and down and were like, "Okay, fine. You're congratulations. What you're doing year it. is this? I can't remember. I think I want to say it was." Like 2010, 11, 12. And did you get paid for this radio show? No, no. And and if I would have, if I would have had, you know, some help, you see what I'm saying? Then maybe. First of all, if you're looking at like you pointed to my producer Rob, here's what happened. Yeah. Every time, yeah. So so here's I th- I'm starting to have this feeling. Maybe it's because look, I'm going to therapy and I'm starting. But I I feel like I can totally it, help you. I feel like you know Rob got me to do a podcast. He said you know we you know where this is going. Two years ago, yeah, we started this. Right. Well, really, for the last year, we've been going strong. And um, everybody that would come to the house would be like, oh, this is cool. And you got this set up. And so Nick Swartz was like, hey, can you help me, Rob? And then all of a sudden, uh, somebody else would come up. Oh, yeah, Rob, you're really good. You know? And then my friend Dax comes for an interview and goes, man, I really like this. Gave me the idea to have a podcast. Yeah. So Dax goes, hey, can I use your buddy Rob? So Rob goes with Dax. Oh. And all of a sudden, no, this is great. But what I'm saying is... Everybody, once they see it, has now wanted 
Yeah. Can a I, podcast. So can I help you? my card and we can no, no, talk no. after the, the show. This is what and you need. And every podcast he's helped out is doing better than mine. Uh, this is what you need to That's do. That's the fucking reality. Why? No, you've done something here so and honest. you're not even acknowledging what you've created. What? You're a radio station. All these friends, you can help with the administrative piece of this little venture and then they don't have to even think about it. So instead of thinking as like farming him out to a bunch of different people, it's they are all coming to take a piece of his time as you mount a station. Jesus. By the way, you talked about politics a minute ago. I don't talk about politics on the show because I think it's a relief not to. Okay. He, but, lo- he loves Trump. He doesn't? Are you a Trump no, guy? He's a big no, Trump supporter. Do you know where he is right now? Oh, this when is this going to air? I don't know. No, 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 no. Rob, you think are you he'll be president me? when this airs? Listen, I'm extremely liberal. No, that's not true either. I'm not that liberal. I am. I go, I go with the best person for the job. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. He's got a Bernie Sanders tattoo on his chest. I'm not saying anybody. I, I I like to. I don't talk politics. I don't want to go in there and it's like oversaturated with like all these actors. You know, nobody wants to hear fucking actors talk about politics. Now I understand it's important for a person. It, it, just because you're an actor doesn't mean you shouldn't have a voice, right? Because that's what us actors will say. It's like, what? Well, now that I'm an actor, I don't get to speak up about politics. Well, I think the problem that people have is listening to actors talk about politics stupidly. Yes, things that they <laughs> like, don't. That's exactly, you're right. I don't know enough about politics and what's going on. I mean, I sort of do to pontificate. But you are you're a graduate of a of a highly uh, successful university. What is it? UCLA, right down the street here. <laughs> yes, yeah. and you also didn't you do like study literature and oh yeah, literature and history or American literature and culture. So you're, and you you're like I've got a vocabulary, bro. If we wanted to throw it down right now. I can, and you like pull out some I can like, do it. SAT. You know what I'm, I'm doing? I'm an right idiot. Now? You're not an I'm, idiot. I'm <laughs> listen, I'm incredibly creative and witty and self-deprecating. Talented? I I would say that I'm talented, but I, I would say that um I don't have I'm not book smart. I don't have a ton of common sense. Um I think well, I, that covers I, the whole gamut. You just did the whole uh, it's usually you think a guy's book smart or he has street sense. You've got neither? No, I think I'm just really witty and funny and creative and, and right. charming. I think that's street sense. <laughs> I think that I think you have to go back on. I think you have street sense. Yeah, okay, street sense. Yeah. But you know, look, we know you're you're a smart guy. I think people really. You're, here's the thing: with there's very few people I'll say this about none. None of the guests I've had really have what you have, except for Henry a Winkler. Gut? No, <laughs> Henry I got Winkler. A gut now, <laughs> <laughs> well, how old are you? Forty eight. Yeah, forty-eight. Yeah, I'm, I'll be forty-seven. You know, you can have a gut if you want. You can have a gut. You have three kids. I don't want it. It's you're really married. annoying. It's so annoying. But I've seen you in the. Here's the thing. You're like a chameleon. You're like a. You're like the Tom Hanks. You're like the. Uh, what's an actor that gets heavier and then skinnier and then medium sized? De Niro. De Niro. <laughs> you are a I De, am Niro. De Niro. That's this... when you think of Goonies. You think that guy. You know what? Though? Is De Niro. I think that you, you know, <laughs> I've seen you in amazing shape. We talked about the marathon you ran. Yeah, the triathlon. The triathlon, yeah. which was like the craziest story yeah. I've ever heard, which yeah. we can get into that. But before I, I so get into that, that, oh my God, it's one of the most amazing achievements I think anybody can ever do. And I, and I, I really couldn't do it. I think, I think what you're saying is true for my for most of my life as a, as a, a in my professional Oh, by the way, sorry. I want yeah. to cut you off because what I was saying about Henry Winkler is you're one of the nicest guys around. That's what I wanted to say. So go ahead. He isn't. Henry Winkler's an asshole. <laughs> no, he's well, I mean... no, no, he's not. I've met him, and he's uh, he's a hero of mine. And he, I mean, his children's books, and he's just like I've seen him interact with lots of fans in lots of different settings, and he's just always so. Yes, Henry Winkler is. 
I will I will defer to uh, Henry as as one of the as the nicest person in show business. Is it just innate? Is it something that is it? Do you? This is an important question for me because I'm always asking questions that reflect maybe my life or why I I am not. The, That's you good. Know, at, do you think that your childhood was the main component to who you are now? Do you think it was like you had was your childhood great? Was your family kind? Were they? Do you know anything about my my particular? I mean, are you asking a general question or a specific question? Because these hills, this Wonderland Avenue right around the corner from here, and these hills are kind of like I was reared in these hills. Um, well, not exactly, but close. Actually, I was driving up there because I was a little early, and I looked down, and I could see Sierra Towers. Do you know what Sierra Towers no. is? It's the really tall building right at Sunset Doheny, the super tall one, the one on the south side of the street. Yes, like yes, The yes. white one that with those weird kind of yeah. – Yeah. That was So I was conceived in that building. Really? Yeah. In an apartment building? Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, I don't know if that's exactly where I was conceived, but it, my mom was living there. Patty Duke. Patty Duke is Not my mom. Not just your, your mom. Yeah. Patty Duke. Yeah. I, one of the a funny story was she came down. First of all, she was short, like real, like five, like like four eleven, four ten. And what are you five nine? I'm five seven. <sighs> whatever. Well, that hasn't uh, hindered your career yet. or whatever. No, no, no. It ha- actually, it's been. Helpful. Yeah, it's been very helpful. I mean, Lord of the Rings, I don't think if you I were a six foot four, no, you'd be, uh, yeah. No, no, I played a hobbit, and Rudy was too small to get on the football team, and God. I did Memphis Bell, which was, the, I played the character who went in the ball turret on the B-17 bomber, which is, you have to be really short to get in there, so being short been very, very good to me. But um, but I was going to just tell you this little story, it pops into my head. My mom goes down, and there's like a doorman, you know, the door, the car, 1970, and uh, she jumps in a car and takes off. And she finally is into Beverly Hills, and she pulls over, and she doesn't know what the heck's going on. And she realizes there are these blocks strapped to the pedals. She had jumped in Willie Shoemaker's car, the jockey, <laughs> the world Why? famous, because they're both short. And I guess they had a similar car. So you know, it was like she didn't get. It wasn't Grand Theft Auto because in those days you were just like, oh hey, here's a bottle of wine, and and it's fine. But <laughs> sorry. Yeah, but no, I mean, I think in terms of the thing you're talking about, I mean, my my mom was a very famous bipolar sufferer. She wrote books and gave speeches and Larry King would always have when some awful incident would happen and it was mental health related. My mom and Muriel Hemingway and I can't remember who the other one was, but they were the kind of go-to national figures for talking about depression and bipolar disorder. And, and it stuff. probably wasn't as as big as it is now where people are really starting to open up a little more about... Well, she's credited with being... The first, the pioneer? The, 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 in, in terms of bipolar disorder there's others before her who really open about their depression and that kind of thing but but yeah. in this kind of new the new market era of talking about the you know the psychiatric the kind of index of things anxiety and all these things bipolar was one of the ones that was really taboo could you uh define bipolar in like a, a sentence or two for people who don't know exactly what bipolar is well my mom would always just kind of distill it into the idea that there was a chemical imbalance in her brain and the medicine that she took, the lithium or the lamictal that she took, helped. Um, you know, lithium is a, is an element. It's one of the it's it's a it's a metal, right? So apparently, there's something in the uh, and and this is in my own investigation of this with psychiatrists and stuff. I have been really shocked to see the lack of a vocabulary for average people, like for lay people. You can't. It's very hard to to put into it. But basically, it's. Uh, they'll give you a list. If you look at that big, there's a gray book, the psychiatric, 
oh, whatever it's called. It's the it's the most known psychiatric well, it's, book. It's the book. It's this big, huge telephone-looking book of psychiatric disorders. And if you go to Bipolar and you open it up and there's like a list of 12 behaviors that are indicated with it, um, you know, depression is one, euphoria, uh, sexual promiscuity, um, erratic, uh, erratic uh, spending, um, uh, delusions of grandeur. Um, there's a whole a whole series of things, and the, and my mom satisfied every one of them. My mom went on the Dick Cavett show. You remember who Dick Cavett is? Dick yeah, Cavett, of yeah. course. Yeah, so she went on the Dick Cavett I show. Get Dick. Yeah, she said she was Rob, building. You a, love Dick, don't you? Not as much as you. <laughs> what are you talking about? It's because you don't. You haven't watched it enough. So immature. He he was so one immature. of those. Oh, Me, Dick Cavett. That was a Richard joke. I get it now. Yeah, but no, <laughs> Richard Cavett. <laughs> oh, you mean Richard Cavett? Richard Cavett. <laughs> of all the Cavets, Dick was the best one, but. He wasn't Jay Leno. He wasn't Johnny Carson. Johnny Carson was start was charisma and was you know Karnak and all those kind of um, variety Dick show was hosts. Kind of chill. He reserve. was chill, and you would sit down and you'd get like the serious interview with Dick Cavett, yeah. like John Lennon sitting down with Dick Cavett. Yeah. With, you know, like those kind of those kind of interviews. He didn't upstage you. He didn't do anything. He was just kind of there and nice. And yeah, he was smart. He was a little. He was tough. He was kind of like a tough guy. Like, really, you know, little Dick Cavett. I I always got this sense that he had an edge to him. Um, so you've hung out with him? No, no, no. I'm just me watching the show. I, I can't actually watch my mother's this particular episode. It's available on YouTube. It, why? Uh, yeah. Why? It's just too painful. She's too she's too mentally unstable and like she's. So just, you have seen or you've heard? About I've seen it. a little bit of it and I couldn't watch it. I was like, ah. So he, she tells him she, she's going to build an ark in the desert. But is she sort of like, like she was Moses? Calm like she was, when she's saying this, or is she just like it was no? All she over was the place. Well, the thing about my mom was she was really intense. When she would look at you, she would lock on your eyes, and that was it. You were in her tractor beam, and her eyes would like go back and forth between your eyes when she was talking. Oh, and, if, wow. and if there was any of these kinds of stakes or issues being talked about, you know, like life thing, like she, when she was saying she was a messiah basically on the show, but she would just her eyes would go back and forth, really beady fast eyes looking at you, and you were like, you didn't know if you should look at both of the eyes, like try and keep up with her, or just look at one. And the effect that my mother had on people is profound unbelievable all over the world i go and people come up to me sobbing your mother saved my life and but she was clearly just batshit crazy like in that one and she there were other things like she won i think she won three or four emmys and an oscar for the patty duke show i don't think she won for the patty duke show Uh, she was nominated for 10 i think i found out after she died i like didn't know certain things but there was one that she won where uh she was with desiree jr Mm-hmm. They were like Benefer. Yes, which people thought that was your father. Way back right, when, right, right, right. Yeah. He so that was, you know, she still almost to the end of her life kind of maintained that, even though it clearly wasn't true. But um Because you had it tested your blood tested. Blood DNA, and right? DNA and all right. that, and there's just not not a man. No, he's were you weak. Hoping? Yeah, I definitely was hoping. <laughs> You're definitely, definitely hoping your dad's. Yeah. Yeah. Junior, yeah. And and they were really in love. I mean, they whenever they would talk my mom was married a couple times after him. And uh, and he was married to a woman he loved who passed away, Amy. And and uh, we're friends now. We're we're like he's like my godfather. Basically, we sort of settled on that as an idea. They they, they would tell these stories. You could tell that they had this profound connection with each other. But um, they were they were dating in one of these kind of tiffs that you'd see on TMZ now or something like that. And um, and she wins the award and she she goes up and she takes the trophy. And I think it was like the shortest. Speech ever like yeah like the shortest speech ever where she looks I can't remember exactly how she says it but it is 
horrifying. It's so embarrassing. She looks livid like she could just throw the Emmy Why? at somebody. She, they were having some fight. They were having some and fight. And she took it on stage with her. Absolutely. She was fucking You got to know how to turn it off. It's hard to turn it off. Well, but people, it was interesting. It, it was explosive. You know, she was, it was, she was a fascinating person to be around. I don't know if any, if there's a good reason for people to, you know, kind of lose control of themselves, but she generally, that her sense of injustice was very strong. And I would take her side in an argument most of the time until she got, Sort so of like really, the, right? Like, so she got off the radar. Well, so you, you said something about promiscuity. Was she promiscuous? Oh yeah, that's a thing. She, she was also a prude too. If you can be both, how could you be both? If you, if she was. Maybe Rob. Maybe Rob here is a prude. <laughs> <Is it pretty? laughs> well, you don't know. Just go rooting through his closets and see what kind of boas he has. Like I'll go prooting <laughs> through his closet. No, she was. She was just. Um, what used to be called the manic side, the mania associated with bipolar is just about emotional extremes. And people talk about how she would talk about and others talk about um, having this incredibly heightened sense of awareness about everything around them, their ability to connect with people, the way they experience the natural, you know, just a sunset or something like that. It's just, uh, it's just, it's too much. It's like what you hear about with drugs and stuff like you, but without, without drugs and people get, um, you know, it gets, it gets bad. But your original question had to do with like, why am I, I like basically a nice guy. That's what I was going to get to. Like, how did you, because you're also, you're not talking just Patty Duke, but your father who your mother remarried, who adopted you. Yeah. John Aston. Yeah. It was John Aston who, by the way, Gomez, I had no idea it was Gomez from the original Adams family, which is. He was unbelievable. He's such yeah. an unbelievable talent, and yeah. he's still around. He's in 90? 89, And he's yeah. teaching? Teaching at Johns Hopkins. He's he's runs the drama department there, and he's been... It's just incredible. Yeah. Yeah. You sent me a picture like a couple of weeks ago, and I yeah. was like, oh, my God! Yeah, so yeah. Cool. He's, he, you know, he, he moves slow, and he talks slow, but he is um, he's just sharp as a tack, and the students love him. He now has 20 years' worth of students who've graduated who come back to the university who are starting to have successful careers and you see them interviewed on shows and they talk about their their influences and their their training and, and they talk him. about my dad and yeah yeah i want to I hear how the how you grew up how this was how, how did you have any normalcy well in a weird way by the time i came along they had already done the fame thing at the highest level so they were a little over like the coolness of it or being, you know, my dad was married. He had three sons from his, my three older brothers were his first sons from his first marriage. And, you know, when, when Adam's family blew up, I mean, he was, he was like Jack Nicholson, you know, rich from that. No, I mean, not, not as much as he should have. Neither of them had the kind of money they should have had based on the success they had. With my mom's case, it's because she spent more than she earned. So, you know, you can, you can earn a million dollars, but if you spend a million too, you're $200,000 in debt, you know? But he, but uh, at one point my dad started a video editing business and I don't know how much he put into it. Maybe like half a million, three quarters of a million, a million, something like that. I don't know. And it was at the time where he was ahead of the curve and he realized that the studios didn't have the facilities to do all their, you know, like chips and uh, what what other ones were out there that they, that I, I think he might have done Murder, She Wrote and chips. some of those like, remember chips? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they could sub farm out to him and his shop to edit some of the stuff or do the title sequences or whatever but he was too he was just too ahead of his time if it, if it took you know if it, it took him a million dollars to get equipment installed 
you know, video equipment that now is on your telephone, it would take a huge room to fill it up. Oh, yeah. And by the time they'd get it in, it was obsolete. So he couldn't keep up with the turnover anyway. So that was that really hurt his his kind of wealth, I would say, early. But early growing on. up, how, how did like how did he deal with your mom? How did your mom deal with well, you guys? How were you affected? Because as a child, you don't understand. You can't say, um, you know, when your mother has a personality disorder, you don't understand that as a child, do you? Well, they didn't understand it. They, she didn't understand it. And my dad didn't. But he, my dad believed in psychotherapy. He had done a five-year psychoanalysis. I'm going to try that. And he, well, he he tells amazing stories about what he experienced. It's a it's a long it's a long process. But but and my mom was too impatient to do that kind of thing. But. But in a way, what I was trying to say about them, like having already been famous, was like we lived in a house that from the curb looked like a mansion. It looked like it was up the stairs. It was a big staircase, and there was you were like, oh, man, that's a mansion. But then you go in, it had a living room and a dining room and a kitchen and then some bedroom. It, was, it didn't feel like a mansion. You know, we didn't feel like... It was like, just that when you were looking up, it looked big. It looked big from so when the... When you were in there. The, you're in there, it's not that big a deal. The coolest feature you mean was... like my house, right, Rob? I knew you were going to say that. He thinks my house is huge. It's not. I tell people it's huge. He I does. He wants to make me feel like, oh, I'm so rich. I'm so... When you have big ceilings, it feels rich. Yeah, but it's not that big. Over there you, in your room, you have big ceilings. Yeah. It looks, well, when you it looks have a three... giant guest house in the backyard. There's no guest house. <laughs> See what he does? There's dog shit up there. We had a room, a separate room, kind of like an apartment, but it was one bedroom with a little bathroom and a little closet above... The den, what we called the den, and uh, and so each of my three older brothers would spend kind of their last years before they moved out up there, and it was that was the only thing that kind of felt like oh you've got a separate right. like, entrance with the thing. But my point is just that I never really felt like we were well healed, like their fame. We were aware of it, but it was never. It just that's all, I just never felt like that. Well, I just if never you were felt, in the middle of it, it might have been different. But the fact that you weren't and the fact that they were end of it, they were over it in a way. And their values, like they were hippie type people. My dad was kind of a kind of a hippie. Not really, he was sort of a conservative hippie if you can have that. But like we went to a public school up in uh, Bellagio Road School was the the elementary school. My older brothers went to I think Warner or something like that. Like we were it was public school. So we were right in with everybody else and you know, it just didn't we played little league, little league felt normal. They they had an approach to life that was whatever their celebrity was they could enjoy it internally and like where it counted, but they didn't need to demonstrate it. There was no evidence. My mom's Oscar, I think was like, you know, in the bathroom or something like, you know, like the doorstop or something, you know, it was, um, the coolest things were like, my dad would get the 16 millimeter projector out and he'd set up a projector and we would watch episodes of Adam's family. He was like projected that that's like, but then you put it away. You know what I mean? Like if your friends came over People weren't friends with us because our parents were famous. They couldn't give a shit if our parents were famous. So that that's like one important reality to to think about if you want to understand my little situation. But but the other thing was my dad was an intellectual. He was an intellectual. He had gone to grad school. You know, he'd, he he had gotten um, – He his dad was a very, very famous – not famous, but a very influential man. He was head of what they call the Bureau of Standards which now is the National Institute of Science and Technology. It's basically the the regulators of science. So my adopted dad, I'm, sadly I don't get any of this uh, genetic inheritance, but um, but he, you know, so he was an intellectual and his, he would, even though my, it would drive my mother up the wall to hear people talk about it because she knew the like, 
blood and guts guy that you would interact with, but his lessons to us, his teaching. How did he, how did he teach you? Because I have the, um, whatever you're going to say, I could yeah. say the opposite. <laughs> so, well, like, for example, if my father, for instance, was trying to teach me algebra, yeah, my father would say, how do you not know that? <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not even joking. He'd say, I could do this backwards in my head. Why don't you know this? Ouch. If X is four, then what? Are you an idiot? And then my mom drugged out in the other room doing like... Uh, uh, Cartwheels? No, ima- like imaginary... Uh, what are those? Snow angels we're getting... on the carpet. She would be like, Mark, leave him alone. But that's... I remember I that. I think we're getting Literally. to the bottom of why you didn't sort of set the goal to be book smart. Yes. But <laughs> your parents were the opposite, probably. Well, my, Did you get my yelled fa- at? My mother was bipolar. You better believe So did she, like, hit you? Yeah. There was physical abuse. Really? Yeah. Usually, there's always a reason, but there was, you know, it was, yeah. But my dad was, uh, he would go calm, and it pissed her off. Because the more she would freak out, the more he would just get mellower and mellower. But when he would, when he would raise us with stuff, he'd say things like, hey, put yourself in the other guy's shoes. And, you know, two wrongs don't make a right. And he would say it at critical moments when you'd just gotten beat up in school or something like that. And you'd, you'd, uh, or you, you know, you were opinionated about stuff. Um, so there was a value system there. But let me go back because you yeah. said something that you kind of passed over that I think yeah. a lot of people would pass. It seems to me like, you know, a lot of people, uh, you know, you know, had a little bit of abuse or a little bit of verbal abuse or a little, you know, they were spanked or whatever. Yeah. You know, my dad, did he beat me up? No. Did he spank me? Yeah. Did he hit me every once in a while? Yeah. He was very young when he had me. He went, he was going through a lot. Um, you know, and I love him and he's definitely turned a new leaf in my life and, um, you know, working hard to, you know, just, he was always a workaholic, but like, you know, when your mom has a mental illness, is that almost like you've forgiven her because you're like, my mother wasn't like every other person with a normal brain. So if she ever got abusive, you know, it was, it wasn't her. Did, was there sort well, of that? There's, there's, Did you go to therapy? Uh, later in life, but not for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, my wife and I at one point sat down and and like had a, a like a year of meetings with a therapist and Healthy. talked about it. It was oh my god! The biggest thing that I learned is that I talk too much. <laughs> you know, at a certain point, it was like you have to shut the fuck up you once do, in a while, and you I talk do. too much. But that's kind of who we are. But you know what? It's it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and, and the the guy who married my wife and me when he was doing the the little pre interviews of like you know before they marry you, they want to see if you're if they think that you're this is a good idea for you or whatever. And uh, and after he had what talked are those to us, people called priests. Well, no, he. This was a it was a Lutheran minister who had retired from that. So I don't know whether he what had happened with him. Actually, I probably don't want to know what happened with him. But but uh, Pastor Newcomb, Bob Newcomb was his name, like Duke Newcomb, Duke Newcomb, <laughs> yeah. or Newcomb High, <laughs> Newcomb High, um, Newcomb uh, was this guy. And he at the when he talked to us, he said, uh, he said, well. He says, I think you guys. He said, I'm happy to marry you. I think you guys are going to be great together. He said, but. Sean, you need to listen more because <laughs> apparently he would ask a question of Christine and I would not like the direction the answer was going and I would kind of railroad it. So, ah. um, yeah. Yeah. So that wasn't good. But do you think that's a defense mechanism? Do you think you kind just of like rude? It's just impa- it's just uh, to me, it's just immaturity. Just like, you know, you know, like you, you or is it maybe controlling a little bit in an inadvertent way, yeah, sort of like yeah. a subtle way. Like, a, I don't want the direct the, the conversation to go down that path. So let's change it. 
I, I think I've done that probably with yeah. my mom before because I'm embarrassed. I don't want her to say what I think she's going to say. Right. So I'm like, yeah, well, she doesn't. Yeah, that's enough. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. We had similar experience with uh, lots of siblings from lots of different parents and remarriages kind of thing. Like I didn't explain it fully with my, with my dad and his three sons and then me, and then they had, they had my little brother Mackenzie and then they divorced and my mom got remarried and she had, and two daughters, two stepdaughters came with that. And then they adopted my, so like their, and then Christine's life was kind of like that too. But, but to go back to the, the, the abuse thing. Yeah. We we felt sorry for her. You know what I mean? It was like watching a little kid act out. So even though we were little kids, and and a lot of times I would kind of adopt the paternal vibe. You know that that was an interesting role to assume sometimes when she'd be freaking out about my dad, and in some ways she's looking to the Attention. kids for no for to like to adjudicate the fight. You know, your father did this and your father did that and he did this and that. And then she looks at you and you're now in the position of having to say like, you're right, mom. You know what? He shouldn't have done that. Or be like, well, you know, but you did kind of flip out before you had it. You know, we're, you're like this weird juror. So, so what ends up happening is you develop this ability to kind of, you know, run between the raindrops where you don't. You're on. Yeah. Where you don't, but you all, but a tone is what she really wants. She wants a nurturing, supportive, understanding tone. You know, and it's impossible with any uh, relationship to kind of like break it all down in the, in, into its component parts. But this is the quality that people are interested in hearing because it's what's different from, from – or it's what they've experienced that people don't like to talk about. So when my mom was physically abusive, I always sensed that she knew what my limits were and she didn't push past them. So where there was abuse, you were kind of like – it was almost performance art and you kind of like, well, maybe this doesn't hurt as much as it could. There was one or two times where she lost it, where she wasn't. I can see your eyes to you remember exactly the moment. Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. hundred percent, hundred percent. The one thing is we were always loved. It was very clear. There was never any lack of love. They were both very smart people. My dad and his kind of trained what Shakespearean, you know, intellectual way. And my mom in her very street smart. My mom was incredible. You know, she became president of the Screen Actors Guild and she wrote a couple of books and she's she's a very, very powerful woman and and, and accomplished. After she died, my stepdad um, drove down from Idaho with a bunch of her stuff and kind of was like, this and this is stuff you might want to have. And we were going through these boxes of her awards and accolades and stuff. And you like, never knew about her. never even thought And of when it. did she pass? Uh, three years ago. How old was she? Uh, 69. It was her 69th year. Pretty young. Yeah, she smoked like three packs a day. She lived hard. Not just, you know, not cigarettes were really bad. But, you know, she was always just like, there was so much anxiety and stress and tension. And that can't, you know, that's what kills you. 
Did you notice any physiological things caused by the emotional things that she was going through, like that became physical, like ticks or things that you noticed that from the stress and the anxiety and the... Well, she was sort of tough the way she smoked. She'd like hold a cigarette between her teeth like a longshoreman. You know what I mean? And you just got this sense like she would terrify grown men. She, when she was president of the Screen Actors Guild, you know, the Teamsters were behind her. She helped them broker away a, 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 what was going to be a, job, a strike. And she got there and stood up for the Teamsters. Wow. And she, they, they loved her. She could literally snap her fingers and there could be a thousand Teamsters behind her, you know, supporting her in whatever she wanted to do for the rest of her life. I mean, she was beloved by them. But, you, you know, you'd see her get in somebody's face. And it's like a little dog that doesn't know its height. Or its size, you know, they'll they'll just go against the Rottweiler because, as far as they're concerned, they they just if the fight's there, they're in the fight. <laughs> and my mom was like that, and she would she would scare people, and she had a whistle, she had a whistle that was like, I don't know what, like she could hail cabs from blocks away, and I never figured out, you know, with her pinkies against her tongue, I could never, I can never out do, how that. To do that. I know my friend Tom Lally could do that. Yeah. I can't do that. But her, in terms of her like mannerisms and stuff, I mean, she, the medicine that she took. And not just bipolar medicine, but she had bypass surgery uh, a few times, stents. She had a lot of stents put into her heart. She had, she, she had, she was like Job towards the, in the last ten years of her right. life, just always some new thing. And yet she she would always kind of get herself put together to do an interview or to do a, you know, to go do a show, an episode of a show that she would do. And but she looked pretty frail. But she had a kind of um, tremors. They call them tremors. So I, that I'm sure I'm and not that sure started that, probably in the sixties when she was in her sixties. The, no, the tremors were later in her life and they became more and more noticeable. I meant in her sixties In her sixties. So I think that in the sixties no, then no, I did. No. Um, yeah, probably. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. And so like out of all of this, like you, you think in a way like most kids when their parents are actors or, you know, have a lot of fame. Some just go the opposite way. Like, I don't want, you know, their parents don't want them to do it. I'm sure your parents were very open to whatever you want to do. And you just kind of, how did you get in a... Well, they helped. They, they my mother... Because you were young when you started. So my mother had suffered all kinds of abuse as a kid, even though she was really fit. She did the Miracle Worker when she was, she did it on Broadway for a year, I think when she was 13 or 14. And then they did the movie when she was 14 or 15. I think she won the Oscar for it when she was 15. At that point, I think she was the youngest person to win an Oscar, but she saw, she had these managers, the Rosses were her managers and they were these people who they kind of had the industry wired in New York and they would meet all these kids and then they would, you know, they picked the ones that they thought had a chance and then they'd send them out for auditions. And if they got the parts, they were their managers, but it was, it was a little, it was almost like they were caretakers. And when my mom hit, they, it was like, she was the golden goose, but he, he was sexually abusive to her but I think when it came to me, after she had been like America loved her, she was the Patty and Kathy from the Patty Duke show, and she was this sweet, kind of virginal, beautiful, funny thing. And then when she, uh, when Desi Arnaz and I became friends in my mid 20s, and I came to his house, his house was just down the street from here. And, um, and he, he was, he opened the closet door for me, and there was a stack of like 30 magazines that his mother, had saved for him that Lucy, that Lucio Ball saved for him where he was on the cover page, you know, like it, and it was him and my mom. He had a relationship with, um, wow. uh, before my mom with, um, 
with Judy Garland's daughter, uh, with um, Liza Minnelli. Liza Minnelli, sorry, with Liza. Uh, and so there was a little bit of that, but most of it was the kind of you know turbulent Ben and Jennifer. You know what I mean? Like they were that was they were the it people who were having drama, and her mom wanted to save that for him, so he gave those to me. And I went through and read them, and my mother was cast by the people writing those things as this sort of, you know, Harlem, like, you know, wrong side of the tracks. You know, she she was the older woman who was, you know, defiling the heir to the prince of television, you know, Desi Arnaz Jr., whose name was born. It wasn't actually Desi, but, but uh, you know, when he was born, it was on the cover of Life magazine or whatever, a tele- television guide. And it was, you know, all of America knew that that Lucy and Desi had this boy, Desi. And so they, it was just, it, it was really hard for her to be the like villain in the scenario because that's the way they wrote about her, uh, you know, and, and, uh, and she was crazy. She was smoking. She, he was a few years younger and they just, they, they just made her, she ended up doing, um, uh, what was the movie she played? Neely O'Hara in of uh, the guys, uh, Valley, Valley of the Dolls. Valley of the Dolls. She was in Valley of the Dolls where she played a, like a drinking drug addict kind of gnarly character. And it was like that stuck. And, and she had gotten married to the AD on her show and gotten divorced. So very quickly, by like 24 years old, she was this like spent, you know, and uh, like she had lived 15 lives in one life. So when I came along and, and you know, when I was six, seven, eight years old, I think she wanted to have like the perfect kid. She wanted to mm. prove to everyone that she was a like the perfect mother and that you didn't have to have uh, the kind of turmoil that she had in her life in order to have success. So when I was seven or eight, um, I'm always, I always get the dates a little bit wrong or the ages a little bit wrong, but I was seven or eight and she came to me and said, they're doing an after school special. You remember these after school oh, specials? Yeah. They would do these like issue of the week shows, child abuse, teen pregnancy, drug addiction. Kind of groundbreaking. It was groundbreaking, but it was also lame because they would just wrap it all up in a nice, neat little bow in 20 minutes, you know? But they would still talk about it at least. Yeah. So they wanted my mom to play this abusive mother. And she said, okay, but if my son can be the abused. That's right. That's right. So I played. Jesus. uh, It was called Please Don't Hit Me, Mom. And Please Don't Hit Me, Mom. Starring your mother as your mother and you as you. I actually just saw the poster for it. Lance Guest was in it. I don't know if you ever knew who Lance Guest was. Uh, And Nancy McKeon of, what do you call it? Uh, Different uh, uh, Facts of Life fame that my brother started in for five years. So it was their three names, my mom and those two. And then my name wasn't mentioned on the poster at all. But but the poster was of my mom uh, crying on a couch, hugging me. And I had like, I just remember I had this like really big hair. But it was an interesting experience. I like, mean, did she, she in the in the movie or in the yeah she was uh, the abusive. show she was she was abusive. Yeah. So you were like reliving your life. I mean, your life essentially. You were yeah. playing a part where it's like this is real. Yeah. This is actually happening in my house. But you didn't say that. No one there on set. No one had. No to one say in anything. the world knew anything. They, they, you think they just knew? You think people knew what, what that your mom? I think you could tell. I think you could tell. I mean, she was the nicest person in the world. Not quite Henry Winkler, but actually some people were actually nicer than Henry Winkler, but you, but she was, she was an intense person too. She laughed. People loved her. She was friends with people. On the set? Did they like her? Everywhere. Everywhere. Everyone Everyone loved loved my mom. Do you think people for, did you think, were you thinking, 
do they think my mother's really like this? Or were you embarrassed? Were you like thinking, I mean, how did you deal? To me, I would have been like, I don't know. Well, you I deal wanna... with different things as a kid and they come out later in life. When I say I was abused, there were a few terrible episodes. Right, but it wasn't every day. It right? wasn't, I wasn't a person who would, like, I, yeah. I, I wouldn't even change my childhood now if I could go back. I'd maybe change those few episodes, but but we lived a very empowered life. Right. I mean, we were, it was a time when you could ride your bicycle, you know, when I was five through 14, you could go anywhere, you could do anything, friends could come over in the middle of the night, you know, like you Me just, too. yeah. Climb over hedges, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, to go in other people's backyards, yeah, yeah. play wiffle ball when they weren't there and walk that, yeah. Get was... on your bike and go into town and be gone for 14 hours People, and then come and back. Ma, and No one ever says a word. As long as you're there when they put food on the table. <laughs> like, yes, and no one yeah. can understand that, and I and I am... Yeah. I feel bad for people who didn't get to experience that sort of simple life where there wasn't phones everywhere and there right. wasn't because that kind of world that it was just kind of a fantasy, wasn't it? If you think well, back, yeah, and I think a lot of kids around the world today still do experience that. I think once once people have resources is when they are start to insulate themselves a little bit or kind of control the the people that they interact with or where you go or how long you're gone and you know those kinds of things. Yeah. And, and all over the country, there's you know there's places where people live like that still. So, but, but for, for me, we were empowered. And when my mom said she wanted to do this, we would get in the car like at four 30 in the morning. Cause her call time was earlier than mine. Cause she's a woman and women go through the makeup process longer. So it was fun. Right. It was fun. It was like, I'm going to work. First of all, what I said, when she says, do I want to do it? I said, well, am I going to miss school? Oh no, no. My first thing was, do I get paid? That was my first question. Eight years old. She's like, yes. Yeah, yeah. She goes, you get $10,000, but you don't actually get the money until you're 18. It goes in an account, which she was actually instrumental in helping create the law, the Coogan law that made it so that parents and managers can't, and agents take, all can't take all the money. They can Thank only take God. a certain amount of it. So, uh, so she was, and she, her thing was, I'll never touch a nickel of your money. I was like, well, you know, parents actually do kind of give up a lot when their kids are working. So you can see why a certain amount of the money would be. That $10,000 was probably if she kept it in that Coogan account. Coogan account, yeah. I don't know if I ever got it. What? I must have gotten it. I just don't know. I was like, I mean, I'm sure I did. But, um, (laughs) I mean, she wouldn't have touched it. That was a point of pride for her. But when I was doing the Goonies, for example... Um, my parents couldn't come with me to the set. It was like, you know, six months of work and they had their own jobs and their own lives. And it were was you, like, were you, did you have fun? Did I you miss it. them? Were you scared? No, was not scared. No, it was awesome. It was awesome. It was a great experience. It was, well, like I said, my childhood was a great childhood. There was so much fun and love and joy and everything else. But the thing that you, that people key on are the, the kind of most intense dramatic moments. So, um, but no, look, nobody has a perfect life. And you've had a great life, so yeah. If you had a couple of moments, or your mother wasn't perfect because she was, you know, she she had bipolar and she was suffering from that. And she had a couple of episodes. You know what annoyed that me the most? Doesn't make her a bad person. It doesn't. You know what annoyed me the most was when she got diagnosed with bipolar disorder, uh, and she was so she accepted the diagnosis. That's a big key. You know, it takes it takes a lot uh, less time now to get an accurate di- diagnosis than it did then. Then it was like eight years. Eight years for people suffering to get an accurate diagnosis. And then however long it took to get a wellness plan with medicine that actually worked right for you and stuff like that. So, But then she became the expert. 
she became she wasn't actually an expert, but she acted like an expert, and she was always diagnosing everybody or everywhere she. But went how in. brave though? No, it was very brave. It was very brave, but it was annoying because she would present to the world that she was, you know, that she'd had this. She loved the diagnosis because it it gave her uh, kind of a reason to explain away. Not explain away, but but her behavior. Her behavior, and so what she did was she took back the power from people who would have judged her for that. You're crazy. You're this. You're this. I, we don't want to work with her because you know she's unstable. You know your your career. The people in in show business, the, your reputation is like everywhere. It's everything. And if you're known as somebody who doesn't show up on time, or you have fits, or walk off the set, or argue with the director, or whatever, they don't want. Nobody wants to hire you. So, but she was able to flip that and become someone who everyone wanted to work with, because look at how strong she was, and look at her courage, and look at her determination. But when you're in her house and you close the door, and she would still freak out because like her food order was wrong or something, you'd be like. Where's the, you know, the, the, the maven of, <laughs> you know, mental health, you know, at this moment. So it was an amazing learning experience, not just the fight scenes where she would be, you know, the abuse scenes, which were, I was a little bit nervous, uncomfortable laughter. Um, that's my first acting story that I tell people is that, you know, she, she's supposed to grab me. I like forgot to tell her something or I dropped a math book or I don't know what it was in this in the show and so she's grabbing me in the kitchen and and banging me against the cupboard and so I'm laughing and the director's getting nervous you know these tv movies they don't have a lot of time to sort of think about stuff you got to use it because it's interesting well interesting choice Sean they were just panicked because I wasn't doing what I was supposed to do so my mom took me outside and she goes Sean this is my career I took a chance on you you, right, and, and I start to cry. And she's like, okay. And they go, and she's like, rolling, rolling. So they roll, and she's beating me up, and I'm crying and everything. And then they, they say, cut. And the director's like, God, that was amazing. And my mom hugs me, and tears are rolling down my cheeks because I've just, like, disappointed or whatever. And she looks at me, and she smiles, and she goes, honey, that's that's acting. You did it. <laughs> and you're like, oh, oh, good. Okay, good. That's, like, a good thing, I guess. Oh, so, um, But she taught me practical things, like, you know, this is where your mark is. You have to hit your mark. You have to know your dialogue. Be aware of your light. Be better off camera than on camera. Like, a whole series of of really practical, useful you have things. You to be better on camera, off camera than on camera. That was her thing as a professional. That's always true. You know, and to explain that, it's like, you know, when you're doing your scene with somebody, uh, when it's your close-up, a lot of actors will do their best work. But the best work really needs to be for your partner, the, your scene partner, so they can get their best work from you. So you, you that's, know, what a profe- that's what that's professional- what professionals do. Yeah. And I, I've dealt with, I'm sure I've been, you know, there's been moments where I'm exhausted after a 15 hour day and I'm not as peppy as right. I'm not as intense. My voice is gone. I've been yelling all day. Yeah. And the other actors like, Hey, you don't have to yell. I've heard you yell all day. You, can, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But uh, I mean, there was a, a famous scene in, um, on the waterfront where, uh, um, Brand, no, uh, uh Rod, Rod Steiger oh, who played his brother for that major big scene at I the very end. Somebody. He oh. wasn't there. Brand, he wasn't there. Brando didn't want to be there for his close-up for that. Right. So Steiger used to always uh, fuck with him if he'd see him. You fucking bastard. <laughs> you aren't there, you know. Yeah, but it turned out good. It turned out well. <laughs> but Steiger would all tell that story. I, I did this little movie. But my mom, you know, there's, there's, if you pull at the thread of it, um, there's a lot of trust that happens between actors. You know, you can be embarrassed. You're, you can, you can hurt each other, even inadvertently, if you're not thoughtful about what you're doing. Oh, yeah. Not physically, but... 
but you know, acting is, a, it's, I mean, not if you're just in a programmer thing, but there are moments where certain scenes are very tender. And if you've had to be patient waiting to get a part, and then you have to be patient to shoot your part, and then you get your one little moment and somebody just kind of, it doesn't appreciate it. It hurts, you know? And so yeah. my mom's thing, they, she was always about justice. And that kind of thing is like, you want to be there for the other actor because that you, you, it's a moral obligation that you have to that person. And when in school, she'd be like that too. You know, you want to make sure that every kid feels included and respected. And, you know, God forbid if she was watching a little league game, if a coach, an opposing coach Ooh, or some kid did the wrong thing. Oh my God. She'd lose it. Oh my God. Yeah, she wants to do that. Yeah. And they would apologize very quickly with my mother. Oh, yeah. terrifying. Hey, let me ask you, let me ask you this. So, you know, we've talked about, and thank you for being so open about yeah, this. You know, I always talk so, about this stuff. You do? Yeah. You always talk about always it. Always do. On in, in the media, everywhere, you don't care. No, because you know why? Because it sounds like because that's what your mother did. Because <laughs> well, that's how I was raised. But just so with her practical thing, and then my father, like my father, insisted we always have the same academic experience uh, that uh, that other that our our contemporaries were. So if I was acting in a show, I had to be able to walk off the set, go to the school, sit down, and take the same test as everybody else, and do well. That was his determination. So you can just see I'm describing. Parents that love us, a mother that wanted to instill a sense of professionalism, a father who believed in academics, and it would have been very hard to produce a kid in that environment who wasn't kind of like, you know, nice, because that was what was expected. That's pretty extraordinary. Um, (laughs) God, I can talk about this forever, honestly. Um, How would you describe, like, if you had to say in a couple of words, Spielberg, working with Spielberg? Uh, he's a quiet giant. A quiet giant. Yeah. Doesn't say much. Well, I mean, doesn't he says, need to. He when he when he says something, it's always like, wow, that makes sense. Like his, you know, he has a he's one. My wife would call one of the big brain people. What you did know? he do before Goonies besides Jaws? Well, he did. Um, I'm trying to think of what he did. Amblin was his short film. He right. did. Uh, I think Wasserman gave him a shot on um, Duel. Right, Duel was that trucking. Was that, Indiana Jones around then? Before that, was that after? after. So no, no, no. Yes, of course it was because yeah, it was before because Short Round, who was in the second one, was right. Kiwi Kwan, who you right. met, Temple I think of Doom. It, yeah, Temple of Doom. He was Stephen gave him a part in the Goonies playing Data. Right. So yeah. So yes. No. It had definitely been done. I remember walking in for the audition and looking up, and there was um, a poster. I think it was R two D two putting a crown on E T S head. <laughs> that was the and it was George. It was the story. I mean, George Lucas, who had done Indiana Jones, Star Wars, and Star, Wars. which was the biggest box office. He produced whatever. Indiana Jones, right? Right? Did he yeah. write it? Whatever. I don't think he wrote it. No. I don't think he wrote it. Uh, no, maybe. no, that was uh, Kurt's. Uh, what's the guy who wrote Empire Strikes Back? <sighs> He's the one who wrote. I think somebody's going to really? kill me out there. I, I know. I, I know. Just, my brain's dead. But anyway, um, it's early here in California, folks. Yeah. It's Lawrence Kasdan. Lawrence Kasdan. Lawrence Kasdan, yeah. right? He Who wrote Empire Strikes Empire Back. Strikes Back yeah. And Raiders, right? And Grand Canyon. Does that buy and me back Grand into the conversation? Canyon. Is that right? <laughs> Danny Glover. Yeah. Actually, in? my buddy, uh, Marco Black and I wrote Revenge of the Jedi, a script that we wanted to shoot with our super. Well, eight. that's what it was originally called. Right. Revenge of the Jedi before they called it. Was that right? You're yeah, you're right. Yeah, thanks. And I did, and I did a um, miniseries with Elizabeth Montgomery and Elliot Gould. I played their son, and the set teacher was friends with Lawrence Kasdan. So when she saw that my friend and I had written, mostly my friend wrote it, uh, this 
and my brother tries to steal this story like it was his thing, but it's, this it's, I did this. So uh, he we sent it to him, and he sent us back these Empire Strikes Back books and this wonderful letter, like congratulating us on how cool the script was, and hoped it hope we did real well with our film and his film, his film. Empire Strikes Back <laughs> was coming out. Like, do you still have a letter? Uh, no, uh, no, no. So let me ask you. So when you went in the audition room, yeah, S- Stevens there. So my father and I worked on the audition. This is what I'm saying. Like when I had the audition, um, what was the scene? It was a scene that's not in the movie now. It was a scene where Mikey is. I don't know who he's talking to, but he says it's. He's talking about when his dad went to Hollywood to be on The Price Is Right. And he was given an option between door number one, door number two, and door number three. And I I describe what the possibilities were. And he chose door number two or whatever and opened it up, and it was a jar of toothpicks. (laughs) And it was like – and he saw how much it hurt his father. And he was like, I never want to have that in my life. I never want to – like basically I want to make my own destiny sort of thing. Right. So really cool, sophisticated scene. Never Uh, shot it. Never shot it. Never made it. Um but my dad at his condo, they were separated now, divorced now, and my dad worked with me for a long time on the audition. And he kept saying things to me like, Sean, don't act. Don't, don't do what you think your idea of acting is. He says, just when I'm talking, just listen. Listen to what I'm saying. And when you're talking, just say it. This kid is you. And and you and nothing that's being said is out of your own experience. So, you know, like it's not, is nothing basically like that you can't understand. So we work on this. Then we drive over, we, that was in West LA. We drive over to Universal on, on the back lot is the Amlin lot. Yeah. And we pull in there. My dad had this, uh, this old Mercedes that after they were divorced, my mom gave him as this like total gaslighting thing to like give him. It was weird. And he would never, he hated Mercedes and he was like, but anyhow, um, so, but it, and it was diesel. So you could just hear it. Right. So I go in and I'm in there and it's, it's Amblin was this kind of Spanish motif architecture that he did that kind of would become known for very similar to a lot of the Indiana Jones kind of Marrakesh, you know, Morocco style looking thing. And just really cool. And it was on the lot. The guy was so successful. He had a whole complex yeah. on the lot. So, um, so I was in there waiting and You're not nervous. I was terrified. You really were absolutely terrified. Is the, is the, is the biggest director in, yeah, in Hollywood. And, and, and you're on the lot and you you know, you drive onto a lot and there's an audition. It's the same thing for me when I travel. Like if I was, I've been in London, I have to fly to New York or, in LA and fly to New York or somewhere to fly to when you have to fly somewhere for an audition or a meeting, a I never get it. No. I never get it. I always walk in and I don't know what I'm saying. I don't know. I'm nervous. So what did your dad say to you? Was he like, just calm down, breathe? We, well, I don't know that I was showing him how nervous I was. We had, we worked on it and it was good. You knew it. We, I knew it. And, and, uh, and so I go in there and I'm standing there waiting and the lady, you know, and, and it's also kind of cool. It's kind of cool. Like, I have a right to be here. I have an audition. Other kids around you too? No, it was late. It was late. It was like five o'clock, five thirty. So you're the only like kid in there. I was the only guy. That's that, probably was, good. You probably would have been maybe intimidated by another kid. I think they wanted me before I even got there. 
I had met with a casting director. You uh, think they wanted you as the lead before you even I got the part? I think they knew enough about me. Did somehow. Steven ever tell you that later? No, I, they wouldn't. They probably wouldn't say that. All right, so go in the room. So, well, no. Then a guy named Mark Marshall, who's been a lifelong friend ever since, comes up, and he was Steven's personal assistant. And he says, hi, we're going to come in now. And I was like, great. So we go walking down. And I, there's just no overstating how cool the Spanish tile floor was and the the curved, Spanish curved doorways and the big posters of Raiders and whatever yeah. else was on the wall and, and E.T. And, and yet it was like, it was so, I don't know. I had never seen anything. Like I wanted to live there. It, it was looked, comfortable. It, it was comfortable. It was warm. It was warm. And it's like, oh, this is how rich people that are really cool like decorate. Right. (laughs) This is how cool rich people decorate. So we're walking through and he says, are you nervous? And I said, well, yeah, a little bit. He goes, why? I said, I don't know. He goes, well, you're just about to meet the most powerful man in Hollywood. And he opens the door (sighs) and he was, and he had this smile on his face and I was like, okay. So I go in there and there's a tape, a big table set up, like, you know, wide table. I don't know how you'd have like, a meal at this table because if you're like, could you pass this all? You'd have to stand up and reach way over. It was like a big table, like intimidating distance between you and the people on the other end of the table. Harvey Bernhardt, Richard Donner, who directed it, Dick Donner, who directed Superman and the Omen and Lady Hawk and all the Lethal Weapon movies and, you know, Dick Donner. So he's there and Steven's there. So they said, well, can you just introduce yourself? And there's actually footage of this that exists. I don't know if you can pull it up on YouTube or not. But I basically say my name like 58 times. Hey, my name is Sean Astin, and um, I'm here to read for Mikey. So I'm, my name is Sean, Sean Astin. And I like I just in the, like a nervous tick, just keep saying my name over and over again. And they're just sitting there watching. And um, are you then, aware that you're saying your name so many times? No, I'm kind of like nobody's told me what this is about. I didn't know what doing a slate was. Right. They've had me say this, and I was basically trying to work through in my mind, well, what would they want me to, like, how would they want me to say it, or what's the right way to say it? And, you know, and it was kind of funny. It was kind of, like, a little awkward. They were charmed by you. You're cute. They were charmed by me, and I was, like, awkward and nervous. So we do the scene, and it's really good, until we get to this one point in it, and I forget the line. And I start shaking. And they're like, it's all right. You want to pick it up? You want to take it over? And I was like, uh, yeah, can I just look at it? And I looked at it. I was like, oh, right. I remember what it was. So we do it again. And I'm and I at the same spot, I've now psyched myself up. At the same spot, I forget. I go, shit. And Steven gets up and walks out of the room. And I'm like, well, I guess I'm never going to make, you know, another movie, movie in Hollywood. Movie. A movie in Hollywood. I've now, I'm a guy who's cursed. You probably don't want your, the star of your kid movie to be like a kid who, <laughs> a kid who says shit. So, um, so Dick Donner gets up and he comes around and he takes a knee and he's looking at me and I've had this experience so many times with directors and important people in my life and experience when you can tell they're thinking, what is the thing I can say to get through to this guy? I really want to communicate to it. And I'm almost like, I get it. You're here. I'm here. I know you're going to try and say, go ahead. I'll listen. You know, I don't know what, I mean, I had uh, an experience on Rudy like this. So, but he, um, so he just basically tells me the same kinds of stuff my father had been telling me. Don't think about anything. Don't worry about anything. I know you can do this. We, we really, you know, let's, let's, let me, let's just do it again and blah, blah, blah. So we do it again. 
And I get to the spot and I kind of bump on it, but I glance and I kind of do it. I get through it. But it was like, I never did it clean. Right. And they said, okay, thank you very much. And I went out and I got in the car and my dad goes, how'd it go? I was like, I didn't get it. He goes, what do you mean? It's like, I, I didn't get it. I, I kept messing up. I couldn't remember my lines. He goes, that's impossible. He goes, you were so, he goes, I've never seen someone more prepared for an audition and more right for a part. There's no way you messed it up. I go, dad, I don't know what to tell you. At this spot, I messed up. I said, oh shit. He goes, you said shit. I was like, yeah. He's like, I can't, I can't believe it. So we drive home. I guess we get home at like 7.30 or 8 at night. It's dark out. And I go in. And there's another movie that was a big movie that was casting, a Joe Dante movie called The Explorers. Yeah, remember I remember The Explorers? That. Yeah. Uh, Ethan Hawke and River Phoenix. And um, yeah. was Will Wheaton in that one? No. Uh, so, But anyhow, so uh, I was like, I guess we could just start working on that show. And it was funny because we would go – 11 months out of the year and not think about an audition. But all of a sudden there were these two that were like really important. I don't remember going on a lot of auditions. I didn't get in a weird way. I think the agent knew like, you know, they, they, I went into rooms that were, had been prepared. Right. So walked into the house. My mom said, they just called. They offered you the part. And my dad said, I knew you couldn't have messed it up. <laughs> it was so good. So then the question was, okay, so they've offered you the part. And it was like 50 grand or 70 grand or something for six months or four months that would become, I don't know, whatever it was become. So, um, but the Explorers, which the Goonies was this fun kids picture, fun pirate adventure that I liked because I got to kiss the girl. Oh yeah! Oh, I was fired the up. The older girl. Oh, the older girl. I was fired up about that. Like, I really wanted to do that. Did you ever see it, Rob? Yeah, I've seen Cody's. Okay, lot. well, <laughs> you know, you were born after it was. Uh, released. <laughs> well, uh, you were yeah. born eighty-eight. Yep. Yep. Eighty-three. Eighty-five. Five. Yeah. Punk. So. Uh, so they were going to offer you more money for the Explorers. No, I didn't get the offer for the Explorers. I got a t- you- a test offer, so I could go. And the test, the deal with the test deal was. They negotiate your whole deal, and then you sign a piece of paper. All two or three of you who are auditioning sign it, and then they watch you. And if they you can, get it. If you get it, you you, you can, you're in. in. You're in. You're in. So they oh. said they said you have to choose between the the offer. It's Spielberg. So be the easy. Spielberg offer with where I get to kiss the girl, and a movie where I don't get to kiss a girl. That if I don't get it, I lose everything. So, but my dad and the agent were like, Sean, this movie is an important movie. It was about these kids who build a, a spaceship in their backyard and they go into outer space, but it was very, the way it was written. It didn't do well. No, it was terrible. I, I don't know if the movie was terrible, but it was, no, it was, it did not do well. Um, I actually remember liking it until they got into outer space and then I thought it kind of went weird. But, um, <laughs> right. but, but it was the, the stakes were very, high emotional stakes for these kids in their lives. And that was a time when they would make movies like that. Like stand by me came not too long afterwards. And sure. So, uh, obvi- and they were like, we really think you should do the explorers test. Cause we think you'll get it. And we think that's a thing. And I was like, yeah, I was like, no, no way. No way. I was like, I want to do that one. Oh my <laughs> yeah. God. Your career would have gone in a completely, I don't know. You're, you were so good that you would have, um, I don't know. I mean, I think Did you know you were good. Well, you... I don't think I was good the way uh, that River Phoenix was good. I don't think I was good the way Ethan Hawke was good. I don't know if they had more dramatic training 
or they had more experience because this is what they were really focused on in their life, where with me it was kind of a lark. Right. But when I when I saw some of their performances, I would kind of think, I don't think I could do that. Like, I don't think I know There's how There's always to... those guys, though. There's always guys yeah. I look at and go, mm, I can't But I think that. I was appealing looking, and I was comfortable in charming, front of the camera. Charming, cute, that's like, and you were good. Yeah, it wasn't until I was 18 where I was like, hmm, that probably won't be enough <laughs> if you want to actually make a career out of this. Right. What was the gap between... Um... I mean, Goonies, you kept working. The next big break was Rudy, right? No, I did, um, when I was eight, I did two weeks on Please Don't Hit Me, Mom. When I was 10, I did four months on, it was called The Rules of Marriage, that miniseries I mentioned. Right. When I was, but I mean after Goonies. When I was 12 and 13, I did Goonies for four to five months, something like that. Then I think when I was 14, I did a movie with Kevin Bacon. And then when I was Sixteen, I did a movie called Staying Together, and then when I was eighteen, I did Memphis Bell. Yeah, do you ever remember uh, Spielberg ever, ever in four or five months? Because he was on set, right? A lot. He didn't direct the movie, but he would he would redirect scenes if he didn't like what he saw. Did you ever he, see him lose his cool? No, that's what I'm saying. He was a quiet giant. Never. Once. No, and the and the crew, the the way you can tell about a powerful person like that, um, the people around them behave differently. First of all, the craft service was like the Four Seasons Mother's Day brunch. <laughs> I mean, when on Stevens sets, you know, you know, they would they would l- roll out this huge thing. The the crews were quiet and lightning fast. And if he raised his finger a little bit, fifty eyes were on him to make sure that whatever it was that he instructed, he got it right away. And so everybody was kind of his orchestra. Did he like you? Did he like talk oh, yeah. to you a lot? I can't remember. Or did a he lot just of... like was professional and nice to you, but he didn't go out of his way to go, "Hey, Sean, how you doing? Want to hang out at my ha- no, house?" No, he was sort of impish. He was sort of impish, you know. Like this, this movie. I don't know how any how many movies he had produced that he didn't direct. This is probably a rarity. At that it was point. it was early early days for him. I think so... Poltergeist was probably around that time, right before. But it so was, he, it and, was and also... he ended up supposedly. God rest Tobe Hooper, who I love. Who directed Funhouse and Poltergeist and Texas Chainsaw Massacre? But a lot of people say that you know Spielberg really directed Poltergeist. There's a lot of like you know I don't know if it's folklore or but whatever um, that he was always on set and he was always so yes I don't I think he preferred... I think Dick directed, directed Goonies eighty twenty I think he came back and sure. redirected twenty percent maybe maybe seventy five twenty five well he was an established it... director too and I think Tobe had just done like Texas Chainsaw this raw well they really also amazing... had they had sensibilities that really complemented each other yeah. Dick understood the like. You know, twenty thousand leagues under the sea type, you know, adventure, swashbuckling kind of things. And Stephen would build little moments, little moments that were like really powerful. We did one scene is the wishing well scene. Do you remember oh, the wishing well scene? Yeah. So the, this one's for me. No, the, okay. There's that wishing wells. That's what Corey Feldman says in the beginning when right. he's like my, dreams. Yeah. This but, one's mine, right? But then we they're gonna leave. They're gonna go up the bucket with Troy. And I give them this speech, you know, don't you guys see, don't you realize yeah. the next time you see Sky, it'll be over another town. The next time you, you know, Chester Copperpot, he was a pro, but he didn't come this far. And wait a minute. Do you remember the whole speech? I'm just hitting Do highlights. Do you remember the whole thing? I just did the best I could. I, don't I can't remember. I could probably assemble it if I was on a desert island and you gave me an hour. I want you to, uh, I want you to make your voice 12 years don't old. Don't you guys and... see? Don't you realize Chester Copperpot, he was a pro and he never got this far. That's amazing. <laughs> I know. Uh, thanks to all my voiceover work. But the way they staged it, 
Dick Donner staged it with me up on top of that little kind of ledge where the bucket was and then talking down to them. Like, don't you guys see? And looking down and making an appeal down to them. And Steven redirected it. Like he reshot it. He staged me down in the well, just the opposite. And the audience, your audience can't see us, but if you, if you're following along, Put both your hands out and reach them towards the floor and say, please help me. You seem powerful and condescending. Right? right? Now, reach your hands up to the sky and say, please help me. It's like a it's prayer. A much, it's, a, it's much more vulnerable. Oh, and so, yeah. so Stephen did that. you know. And, but Dick Donner directed the moment with Willie at the end where, where, where Mikey f- has a conversation with Willie. And that was a very soft Where he leaves moment. Willie, he goes, this is for you. Yeah. Or like being, yeah. being, the rest is for. I know. got here. I beat you. That whole thing, yeah. So, and that was very important to Dick, uh, that 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 the emotional tone of that be right. And uh, and he was he talked to me a lot about that. There were some other really great like acting cool things. He the scene in the attic where um, the map the map scene uh, when he tells them where, where where he tells them the history of the the big battle between the ships and the, the, the Spanish. You know the Armada, the Spanish Armada, and and Willie. You know he he escaped with the Inferno, the ship, the Inferno, and what that whole speech. Apparently, that had been written for the Fratelli brothers, ah. for one of the Fratelli brothers. <laughs> Apparently, it wasn't as magical coming out of the villain's mouth. So they were the, in that attic setting. We, we shoot it. So Dick Donner took me outside. And again, it was you, when you're a kid, you remember certain things like getting up early with my mom before the light, before it was light or remembering that it's the end of the day. It's, it's like past dusk and they, the kids have to, they're going to cut us loose, you know, that, that we have a certain hours they have to meet and they need to get the day. So he goes, Sean, I'm going to tell you a story. Goes, I just want you to listen. Don't talk. Open your eyes, open your ears and just hear this whole story and when i'm finished i want you to tell it back to me i said okay so he told me the whole spanish armada story no way and then you just repeated the story that he told and then he said now tell it to me and i told him back on film well that was outside first that was outside first and when i did it when i said it back to him he goes you think you can go in there and do that and i said yeah he was great so we go in there and we sit down and we we did it and we and i because it looks like you're actually thinking it's such good acting. It <laughs> looks like you're coming up with the stuff like you don't remember, but like, and then there was this, and then there was that, and then there was, and you're like, oh, that's really good acting. Yeah. And it's because you really <laughs> trying to remember, but it wasn't written. It was just remembering, remembering the story. And that's really, that's, that's incredible. Isn't that cool? That's yeah. really incredible. Yeah. But Steven, you know, the kissing scene, he wanted to direct. Did you, was that your first kiss? Probably not. No, I don't think it was. Uh, was that, Andrea Canetti was my first kiss. Was it a tongue? What? No, it was a very sweet. Yeah, it was kiss. sweet. I remember being sweet. So yeah. it wasn't like it was a dirty. Yeah, the big bummer was when I read the script, there was a thing at the end where they kiss again, where, where she kisses Brand, played by Thanos now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right? By. by uh, What's his name? Josh Brolin. Brolin. And um, so I thought when I read the script, because I kind of read it quickly, and I was young and not a great reader. Reader, <laughs> um, certainly not a screenplay either, anyway. But um, that Mikey, that she had won him over, she, he had won her over. So at the end, they get to have a kiss. And somewhere in the six months of shooting, I realized that no, it was an accident that she kissed me, and she really gets to kiss him. 
So I was not happy when I came to that realization. Bastards. Why is he so grumpy today? Sean looks like a real dick today. If I would have known that you could like make a pitch to a to a filmmaker, like, listen, I think, I think the girl decides she doesn't like the guy that's age appropriate. What if? Now just go with me here. What if she falls? For the little guy. <laughs> yeah, that's oh, that's totally believable. Yeah, that's exactly what yeah. should happen. Um, look, we talked about like your private life, your growing up, and 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 just I, I want to talk to you forever. <laughs> like I want to do a two part. Let's be friends forever. Well, we have another guest after this, but I, will you, would you come back? Yeah, because I didn't even get into Lord of the Rings. I didn't even get. I mean, I don't ever really talk about that stuff. It's mostly about real stuff. Uh-huh. But like these stories are so great <laughs> that, and they're so like you've been in movies that are so huge. Even we're on the second season of uh, Stranger Things. You've got a new Netflix series. What's that called? Uh, no good, Nick. No good, Nick. I mean, you're constantly working. You're such a likable dude. You've done so much, and you consistently work. I think you work when you want to, don't you? Uh, I never felt like that until just after Stranger Things. So I was in my. Are you getting a lot of offers now? Well, no, I don't get a lot of offers, but now I'm really a known enough quantity. And you know, you're talking about how I'm a chameleon or whatever. I think in the last five years, I've kind of like, and it's bumming me out because after marathons and triathlons and everything, when I was so well, yeah, I'm the dad. I'm dad on a kid show. That's what no your good. Dad on, uh, you're while well, you're the a father figure or parent figure in Stranger Things. Yeah, too. and they kill me off on that. So then Netflix puts me as a Great, dad I didn't on see another the rest kid. of it yet. You oh, son sorry. of a bitch. You ruined it. Do you do friends projects? Do you do if I give you like a script? Yeah. I'll do it. Yeah, I'll do anything. I mean, you'll do I anything get, that you like. Well, here's the thing: there are certain things that you're that are right to do. When a young actor walks into a room and there's an older performer in the room, if it's you know appropriate, if you're not interrupting anything, you go up and you say hello and you just say thank you so much for your life of work. You know what I mean? You just there's 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 respect, kind of like you know you shook Sinatra's hand. There's a way to be when you're an older performer. If there's a younger performer there, if there's some way to give them an assist, help them out, give them a thought, you do that because that's like what's that's what the moment calls for. There are a lot of people who uh, you know kids, students, whatever, if they have a film, like it feels like the right thing in the history of the industry in that they're give them a break. Yeah. Like, and it's, and it's good for you too. It may just be a student film, but the the next Spielberg. Yeah. But I mean, whatever the moment is that that kid's trying to come up with, if you can honor that moment, right. And you, and you create something special, you've done something just as real in that moment as you would do in Lord of the Rings. It's, it's, it, you honor that moment. So I, it's harder now. I think my time seems to somehow just well, you got a going so fast and there's always yeah. so much stuff to do, but, but on, uh, I, there's no standing on ceremony. I remember my dad, I would do all these little short films, you know, super eight films. And, uh, so I, we did a thing called the enchanted dreamer and it was basically kind of a crib from uh Lion, the witch in the wardrobe. My little brother was the star of it. And he, he goes into the, into the the cupboard or into the closet in his room there's like light emanating from it and dry ice and he goes in there and then he falls through a stitch in time and he's in the uh he's in the woods so i go to my dad i created this character called the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end and i was like dad i want you to come and play this kind of wizard ben kenobi guy and my dad looks at me and he goes well you know sean i am a professional actor you know (laughs) And it was so funny. Like, I think he was being serious. I think he was like, you know, uh, like, I need to call his agent. I don't know what. (laughs) Dad, I'm your son. You should just do what I need you to do to help me. And sure enough, he put on this robe and we went into UCLA 
woods around UCLA and we filmed this scene and he was wonderful at it. I got my mom to play the queen. So I did have access to talent as a kid. I like that. Yes. You had a lot of talent. Um, this has been too great. <laughs> I really don't want to let you go. Cause I know you have no time. I explained to my kids why I was came here this morning. Why? They're they getting ready for school. Why'd you, what'd you explain? Well, I said, you guys know where I'm going? Because I always just leave. They're like, okay, bye, Dad. And I don't have, they, they have no they idea what I do. No idea. You know, they, they know if it's, you know, Stranger Things. You know, they know oh, that's cool. Yeah. And then you do other stuff. And I'm like, Dad, why are you doing that? So I met this guy, Michael. We go to conventions together. And we had a kind of sacred experience going to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland. Cleveland together. Oh, yeah. And I said, like, it was closed. They opened it up just for me and him. And we went through there. And it was – and so he's got this podcast. So I'm going to go to his house and talk to him on his podcast. And I just wanted them to – like, you, it's like with my parents. You just want to try somehow to impart your value system. That Like, we we made friends. You and I, we're friends now. Yeah. You're doing a podcast. My friend's doing a podcast. He wants me to do a podcast. It's what you do with a friend. I wanted them to like, please understand that this, that it's not just money that animates dad. Like, cause they know like, oh, you're going to do a con. That means money for a, you know, a semester of private school at the high school or whatever. Um, and they know what work is, but I just want them to get my value system. Like you, you, and they already know with their friends, but I want them to know that that's important to me. Well, that means a lot to me that you came here, you took your time. I think you're an unbelievable human being, and I love hearing your stories. Even Rob was intrigued. <laughs> Rob was sleeping. I thought he was going to start snoring. <laughs> no, he, I could tell he likes it. When he likes it, like, for instance, he was, like, you know, taking pictures and taking videos, and, like, he, he really enjoyed the stories. Didn't you, Rob? I did. What was the biggest thing you'll take away today from... Uh... I like the Goonies stories. See? It's funny because I, I, it's not that I steer away from like stories about working on certain things and I'm, I'm a fan like everybody else, mm -hmm. but you know, you've told these stories, but you know, I wanted to get inside and then I did. And then all of a sudden that then these stories were like, they just took on, I, I don't know. They were really interesting is why I liked them. It wasn't like, I felt like I was there. I could, I could picture the room. Yeah. I could picture the posters at Amblin. I could picture Spielberg's face and the glasses <laughs> like on his nose. I could see him walking out of the room. I could see Donner going, okay, hey, let's do it again. I could see you looking at your pages. I could feel your heart beating yeah. in that scene. I could yeah. feel all those things. And like, you're a good storyteller. And I think that's why a big part, why you're successful. But what you did stories. was what, I, I don't know who your audience is. It's probably mostly crazy people. Yeah, like me. But uh, they're yeah. all my crazies, yeah. right, guys? And there's probably like two of them, right? Like, how many, do you know how many people listen? About six. <laughs> no, no, there's a, a lot of we. We get about 150 thousand downloads a week. So what I love about the way that we that this little interview took shape is you could see that a life that had drama and pain in it also had exquisite joy, and I sort of think that's a good thing for people to be able to have reinforced for them. Well, thank you for me, allowing me to be inside of you today, Sean. It's been a real <laughs> I loved treat. having you inside of me. I loved it. We're going to take a little video and some pictures, and then okay. uh, we're good to go. Buy, I love you, buy buddy. 150K. You're great. <laughs> so build that audience. Thanks for listening, guys. <laughs> Thank you.
Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.